0: Please turn with you in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll be looking this evening at verses 7 through 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Here's the Word of God. The Apostle Paul writes, But we have this treasure. In jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed Lord, we thank You this evening for the Word of God, and pray that You would sanctify us by Your truth, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we return to our study of 2 Corinthians, uh, a little review, maybe in order, simply because it's been quite a while. Uh, Paul wrote this letter, uh, obviously, to the church in Corinth, This has been described as, in many ways, his most personal letter both in terms of how he shares his heart with them about himself and his own spiritual life and struggles, but also in terms of his passion for this church in Corinth, a church obviously dear to his heart, but one that has also caused him no small amount of pain in his heart. As he writes, he is somewhat on the defensive, thanks to those who have come into the church after him, and in different ways tried to undermine, if not his ministry among them, then certainly his standing in their estimation of him. And so as he writes, on the one hand, he needs to write to build them up and address different situations in that congregation, while at the same time defending his authority to do so but not in such a way that he comes across as defensive and perhaps giving credibility to those criticisms that have been brought up against him and so as he writes especially as we've been studying uh, in these last uh, couple chapters and the earlier in chapter 4 he explains to them and to some degree defends to them his authority his ministry and the fruit that it bore among them. And in the first part of this chapter, uh, leading up to what we've just read and we'll be looking at tonight, he is describing this ministry that he has, the ministry of the new covenant, a ministry of permanent glory, unlike that of Moses, whose glory was fading, but the ministry of a new covenant. In the first few verses, the first uh, six verses of this chapter, He describes for them the ministry that he has had. First of all, he describes the source of his ministry, that this is a ministry given him by God himself. Verse 1, therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. You're well familiar with Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus and his call by the Lord Jesus himself to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And in fact, in that very passage, the Lord says to Ananias, whom he told to go and uh, to meet Paul, uh, he said, I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. And that comes into play, of course, in our passage. But the source of his ministry was God. He was called to this work by the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on in uh, verses 2 and following to describe the character of, of the ministry that he has pursued and particularly that he has pursued among the Corinthians as he does so. He does with something of a sidelong glance toward those who were troubling them as far as Paul was concerned. In verse 2, he says, We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So the source of his ministry was God himself. The character of his ministry was one of integrity, was one of transparency, relying not on cleverness or, or even underhanded ways, but rather on the simple statement of the gospel, the plain teaching of the word of God and confidence in the power of that word by the Spirit to Change to to work in people's hearts, to build a church. Well, he describes a source there, the method of his uh, ministry being transparency or integrity, but he also describes the message of his ministry. And again, building a subtle contrast with those who were trying to undermine his standing with them. In verse 5 he says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves. Its purpose isn't. To proclaim himself. It isn't to build him up in their esteem. It isn't to draw attention to himself or to somehow fix their loyalties or their affections on him, but rather on Christ. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants. You see, he has that perspective on his ministry. And again, something of uh, implicit reference to those who were troubling him and troubling the church That they were seeking a following for themselves. That ultimately they were not preaching Christ but themselves. Paul says, no, not true of us. We do not preach ourselves. We preach Christ. And insofar as we come into the equation, we are your servants for the sake of Christ, not for the sake of ourselves. In verse 6, he says, for God, he said, let light shine out of darkness in creation has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus, in, in new creation, this new work of life, new work of creation in the hearts of his people and in the hearts of the Corinthians. Well, now he picks up his theme in, in verse 7, one I think he really began with. Um, I think in many ways... Uh, Verse 2 and following is something of an aside for Paul, again, with a view toward his detractors. But there's almost a logical sequence to go from verse 1 to verse 7. Let me read it that way and we'll see what I mean. He says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. There's a logical flow there. And as Paul is often fond of doing, of pursuing a rabbit trail, uh, although a divinely inspired one, to be sure, and we're glad it's in there because it teaches a great deal about ministry in the church. Uh, nevertheless, he I think he comes back to his original thought here in verse 7. As he goes through these words, verses 7 through 12 that we read earlier, uh, he is he's describing setting contrasts, setting things against each other. And if we want to group them, we really could come up with three contrasts that Paul uh, refers to here that describe his experience of the Christian life and his experience of ministry. In the first place, the Christian life and Paul's ministry uh, demonstrates a contrast between weakness and power. Weakness and power. Look again at verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, and not to us. First of all, he says we have this treasure, and the question is, what treasure? What's the treasure? To what is he referring when he says we have this treasure? Now, When you read the Bible, if you're paying attention, these should be the kinds of questions that come to mind in your own reading, in your own study of the Bible. Not just letting the words flow by, but ask questions of the text. Look for things that are not necessarily immediately clear. And that's such a case here. We have this treasure. What do you think? What comes to mind? Well, obviously he's referring to something in pretty close proximity to what he's just said. Uh, a couple of ideas for you that come from the previous verses. What do you think? What What is the treasure? Any ideas? Ministry. Okay, that could be could be one option. What else? Christ. Okay. Any others? Good, because I think that's about it. Uh, if we look back at verses 1 through 6, first of all, what, what immediately proceeds is verse 6. Um, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give, what? To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Someone said Christ, or particularly here, maybe the knowledge of Christ, or even the gospel itself. That certainly could be the treasure to which Christ. Uh, Paul is referring, uh, and it would fit well. We have this treasure of the knowledge of Christ in jars of clay. Another uh, reference was made to the ministry itself, and that too seems to, to fit well. We Having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, and particularly if you see seven is resuming the thought, but we have this treasure. What treasure? We have this ministry given to us by God, and there's a parallel uh, way of expressing it, having this ministry. We have this treasure. So I think you could make a good case actually for either one. Uh, And so it's somewhat hard to be absolutely dogmatic, which it should be. Uh, I personally probably lean more toward the fact he's referring to the ministry simply because the language is parallel. We have having this ministry by the mercy of God, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. Uh, but I don't want to be too dogmatic about that. And in fact, they really do fit nicely together. The ministry is uh, to proclaim the knowledge of of Christ. Uh, the ministry itself is an extension of knowing Christ, of the treasure of the gospel in Paul's own heart. And the ministry is to impart the knowledge of Christ to those who listen to him. so... In fact, there's, they're not certainly not an antithesis, not against each other. The two, the ministry and the Christ of the ministry go together. But we have this treasure, whether it's the light of the knowledge of Christ or the, the commission to minister Christ. We have this treasure, he says, in jars of clay. The point being the weakness. The point being how fragile is the vessel in which the treasure is contained. Some have suggested Paul is referring here uh, to the little earthenware lamps in, in which you would place oil and, and light the oil, and, and it would light up the room. Uh, and, and it fits nicely, especially if we're talking about the light of the knowledge of Christ, uh, a simple, fragile, plain earthenware lamp containing the oil that allows the light to shine. Others have suggested that Paul is referring here not so much to a lamp, but to just a container, a vessel for storing things. And uh, certainly um, people who had something of value might store it in a simple earthenware, earthenware container. Uh, in fact, um, that was certainly not unknown, whether on a small scale or even a large scale. The the first century Greek historian Plutarch tells of a, uh, a victory... Procession in which 3,000 men carried 750 uh, large earthenware vessels carrying silver coins that were the spoils of war in procession. And some have suggested that Paul's um, inclination to use that triumphal procession imagery could also be what he's referring to. And in fact, he just used that imagery earlier. In, uh, in chapter 2, verse 14, Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Uh, so he's already used that imagery, and that's certainly possible. He uses it in other places, the idea of treasure being contained in these vessels, sometimes paraded as the spoils of war. But whatever vessel or lamp or whatever it was Paul had in mind, the point ultimately is it's mere dirt. It's just clay. It's, it's plain. It's easily broken. It's uh, nothing of any great value in and of itself. But it is a vessel that contains a treasure of inestimable value. And that's what Paul is writing here. And he says we have this treasure, whether it's the commission to carry out the gospel or whether it's the knowledge of Christ and the two certainly go together, in these fragile, plain vessels, why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God entrusts the gospel, God entrusts the ministry of the gospel to weak vessels. So that it will be most plain that the power is not in the vessel. The power is from God. Now, Paul will elaborate on that later, as you know, perhaps if you're familiar with 2 Corinthians, when he's talking about his thorn in the flesh. And he goes on to say that he glories in his weakness because when he is weak, then he is strong. And so the first contrast that Paul talks about here is the contrast of weakness and power. Weakness in the vessel, whether it's the Apostle Paul or you or me. And yet the power of God at work in the vessel. You see, when God wants to use you, When God wants to use me, He can do nothing better toward that end than to humble you. Than to overwhelm you with a sense of your weakness. With a sense of your inability. I can recall learning to preach. I can recall it because it's going on right now. Um, but it seems like, and I may have shared this with you before, you know, reflecting on preaching, uh, and, and this may be true of you as a, as a teacher, as a Sunday school teacher, if you've taught for any length of time. Uh, going through the stages, on the one hand, of, of you know the first sermon you preach, the first times that you ever get up to preach. Uh, the first time I ever preached was in October of 1985, uh, subsequent to a trip to Korea some the summer, and it was kind of a combination sermon from Acts 2:42 and mission report. I was scared to death. I thought I was going to hyperventilate, and I was astounded when it was over to discover I had survived it. And, you know, the first few times are like that, and and you realize you can survive it. Uh, And maybe you've had that experience in in teaching. And then you start to think, well, I can survive this. Perhaps I can thrive in this. And you begin to work at at developing better technique. You become a little more aware. Your your mind's not racing quite so much. You, You can actually begin to think a little bit about what you're doing and improve, and improve in preparation, and improve in delivery, and so forth. And I was there, and you work on that in seminary, and all kinds of uh, efforts and ways to try to improve someone as a preacher without necessarily fitting him into some particular mold of what a sermon or a preacher should be, but developing the individual and his own gifts, his own way of preaching. But then you reach a point, and I can remember this experience of being well prepared and, and having well thought through things and, and, and thinking that you did a reasonably decent job of delivering a sermon uh, and yet being hit in the head with the thought that unless God works, I'm just wasting my time. No matter how good it was. No matter how moved emotionally people might be, no matter how much information they now received in their brain, unless the Holy Spirit takes that effort and uses it, ultimately it doesn't count for the kingdom at all. And that's humbling. And that's exactly where you need to be. And that's exactly where I need to be. Because what it does is not make you prepare less, it makes you pray more. I need to pray more in addition to preparing much need to pray much. You teach. Do you spend the time praying that you spend preparing? Not that it necessarily has to, to be in balance. If you spend an hour or two preparing, you have to spend an hour or two praying. wouldn't hurt. And they're not in contrast. It was Martin Luther, I think, who said, uh, you know, you don't pit the two against each other. In fact, what's better than spending an hour or two pre- uh, studying on your knees In prayer, praying as you prepare, and the two certainly go together. But that's the point Paul is making here. We're only clay pots. We're only earthenware vessels, so that the power might be seen to come from above, to come from outside ourselves. That's why we want God to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Not so people will think much of us, but so people will think much of him. And so, so Paul draws this contrast in his own ministry between his weakness as a jar of clay and the power of God. The second contrast that he brings up here is that of the contrast between suffering and sustenance. Suffering and sustenance. Again, the Lord said, I will show how much he must suffer in Acts chapter 9. And Paul did suffer. His was a hard ministry on several levels, not least of all, physically. We look at verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. The image here is that we we are pressed down. Some translations render it that way. We are pressed down, but not pressed so much that we're just squeezed all together. It's a tight squeeze, but we're not crushed. God protects, God delivers. He says, We are perplexed but not driven to despair. Actually, the second part of that uses the same word. If you wanted to translate it to reflect Paul's play on words or or word usage, you could translate it to say, We are perplexed but not hopelessly perplexed. Paul admits there are times when he's baffled. But he's not baffled so much as to be without hope, as to despair. There were no doubt times in Paul's ministry, although we don't think about him this way, when he had to wonder, Lord, is this what I ought to be doing? What should I do next? Should I persevere? Should I leave? Should I stand and take the beating? Should I flee from my life? What do I do? You Remember, Paul had come to Corinth, and the Lord comes to him and says, Paul, don't be afraid. It ever were to you Paul was at times afraid? Paul, the Lord says to Paul, don't be afraid. I have many people in this city. This very town now to which he writes. The Lord said, I have people here, even in this wicked, vile place, who are going to respond to your message, become Christians, and a church will be started. Don't be afraid, Paul. Paul says, I was at times perplexed. Maybe perplexed by what God was doing. Lord, I don't understand. Why are there not more results here? Why is this happening? Why is that happening? You know, we all struggle with that. Why doesn't God do more here? Why doesn't God act? But he wasn't perplexed to the point of despair. God kept him from that. Verse 9, persecuted but not forsaken. Persecuted, pursued, chased, hunted like an animal. And yet God had not abandoned him. God did not forsake him. Struck down, but not destroyed. You know, as I was thinking about these things, it came to mind, what came to my mind was Paul's ministry in Lystra in Acts chapter 14. This was on his first missionary journey. Talk about your roller coaster. They come to Lystra, there's a man there who's crippled, and they heal him. And that causes a big stir. When the crowd saw this, they said, The gods have come in the likeness of men. They give him names. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest comes out and, and begins to set up for a big offering to Paul and Barnabas. And they say, no, 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 no. wait a minute. Hold everything. We're just men. Yeah, this was done through the power of Christ. Verse 15, we are also men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Who made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that's in them? In past generations, this is verse 16, He allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet He did not leave Himself without witness, for He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. They're about to be worshipped as gods. They preach the gospel. Glorious moment, right? Well, for a brief time, and then in one verse, verse 19, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Went from deity to dead in one verse. He wasn't dead. Verse 20, when the disciples gathered about him, you can just see them all huddled in a circle looking at Paul, trying to figure out if he was breathing. He rose up and entered the city. Struck down, but not destroyed. You see, the Lord preserved Paul physically until that time when, if tradition is correct, Paul would be beheaded, but not one minute before. And even then was to enter life. So, suffering and sustenance. Paul could say in Galatians 6, I bear in my body the marks of Christ. Physical abuse his body took as he pursued his calling. Struck down, yes. Destroyed, no. This, this contrast, suffering on the one hand, sustenance on the other. There will be times as Christians and it wasn't all physical. There was a great deal of inner emotional and spiritual suffering for Paul. His care for the churches. The burden of knowing that there were people going into these churches and undermining their affection for him. Uh, Very hard things, things that kept them awake. Uh, But we experience that, if not the physical part, we certainly experience the other side of it. The suffering, the affliction, the realities that we experience. And yet God's sustenance, God's keeping us, God's upholding us. Well, then last, the third contrast is death and life. Weakness and power, suffering and sustenance, death and life. And this is verses 10 through 12. Always carry this follows from what he's just been saying, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be also manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being, being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. This experience of both death and and life. Paul said in Romans 8, quoting from the Old Testament, we are killed all the day long. He could write in First Corinthians to this church, I die daily. Which tells us when he speaks of this death, certainly ultimately it was a physical death, which was only his being ushered into the kingdom, the presence of Christ, the kingdom of heaven. But by saying I die daily, he indicates that he was also speaking of a metaphorical death. That carrying out the Christian life carrying out the ministry god had given him meant experiencing a very real sense of death every day carrying in the body the death of jesus not necessarily physically dying for jesus though again he eventually would do that but that experience of daily crucifixion crucifying his own pride his own desires his own even his own needs for the sake of serving christ the sake of following Christ, And all the while experiencing the life of Jesus, the power of the resurrected Christ in his body, in his life, in his ministry. Remember in Philippians 3, Paul says that his desire was to share in the sufferings of Christ, that he might experience the power of his resurrection. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The Christian life is that contrast of both dying daily and living in Christ daily. And if there's not a sense of dying, then you need to ask, how closely am I walking with Christ? Christ is a crucified Savior. There is that essence of death in our Christian life and certainly in ministry. But there's also life. There's power because we're in union not only with a crucified Christ, but a raised Christ, a resurrected Christ. Christ. Now, the third, verse 12, the third contrast, verse, verse 10, then verse 11, he says we experience the death of Christ in our bodies, we experience the life of Christ in our bodies twice, but the third time is different. Look at verse 12. So, the conclusion, death is at work in us, but life in you. Now, you may recall in 1 Corinthians, Paul somewhat sarcastically says Speaking to the Corinthians' view of themselves, that they've already arrived, Uh, Paul says, here we are, we suffer and die, but you reign. You've already become kings. You've already begun to reign while we suffer. There's none of that here. That's not what Paul is saying here. Death is at work in us, but life in you. That's a very sober and revealing statement about ministry, about his ministry. That while he was experiencing death daily in Christ, the fruit of that was life in the Corinthians. And in many ways, that is his strongest apologetic for his faithfulness to them. His experience of suffering in following Christ and in ministering in Christ and the life that that has produced in the church in Corinth. Some of you may have read Elizabeth Elliott's biography of the Irish missionary Amy Carmichael, who went to India, was in India for some 53 years, never came home on furlough, and started a a home there, a haven for uh, young Indian girls who were caught up in temple prostitution, effectively rescuing them from that and uh, certainly spreading the gospel of Christ where she was they're in India but I love the title of that book the title of the book is a chance to die all effective ministry involves a death in some way usually metaphorically dying to oneself dying to one's desires and preferences and comforts in order to minister the life-giving power of the gospel to another And certainly you see that in Paul's life. We've seen that down through church history. Paul knew what it was to die daily, to experience that suffering. Jesus spoke of this before Paul did in the Gospel of John, when he is describing his own ministry, his own death to give life to the church. And he says in John chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus answered them, uh, those who were there, uh, in reference to the Gentiles who wanted to see him, Philip and Andrew. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus recognized that the only way that the kingdom would be brought into existence, the only way that the kingdom would become fruitful, the only way that Paul would ever become a believer, the only way the church in Corinth would ever be planted, the only way this church would ever begin, the only way that you would ever be here tonight, is if he was that seed that went into the ground and died. Was buried. But in this case, rose again to life in tremendous power, power that was life-giving, power that bore much fruit. Well, a disciple, a servant, is not above his master. Paul's ministry was, was, was able to accomplish great things. Paul's ministry was most fruitful. Paul's ministry bore all kinds of fruit because the seed that was Paul died, died daily. And dear friends, if you and I are going to live fruitful Christian lives, it requires recognizing that ultimately we are only clay pots, jars of clay. That ultimately the Lord may bring suffering and affliction into our lives in order that he might work through our weakness. And that we really must live a life of death daily, that we might live in Christ and that others might live through our ministry to them. Let's pray. Father, easy when these are words on a page, far more difficult when they involve physical illness or injury or humility or mortification of one sort or another. Father, we certainly don't seek pain of any kind for its own sake, but we do pray that you would humble us, remind us of our weakness, that our trust would be in you, whether it's in dealing with sin in our own life, whether it's in dealing with biblical or theological questions, trying to understand the Bible, trying to grow in grace, or whether it's trying to minister to another, maybe another believer, maybe someone who is not a believer. Father, we pray. For grace, Lord, and certainly a chance to die, that we might be fruitful believers. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.